Hey, if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in a number of places. We're in this series of asking the question, what is the gospel? And it's a very much of a topical and doctrinal sermon uh, and series. And so if you have your handout, we're going to begin to walk through it, and we're going to unpack a number of passages of Scripture, all of which will be on the screen, and as well as the fill in the blanks. But let me kind of summarize a little bit of where we have been already. In week one, we talked about the gospel as story. We got to understand that the gospel is a story from beginning to end, that God created all things, good and perfect and in his image and In our sin and our rebellion, what is known as the fall, is that we fell out of God's grace and mercy. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's where that language comes from. We fall short of his glory, which means we fall short of being worthy to be with him and to be in his presence. But the good news of the gospel is that God himself has come to rescue and renew all creation through the work of Jesus. And so God has began his story from the moment we sinned in Genesis 3. It's a story of Jesus coming to rescue and renew all of creation. It is a story where he is renewing and restoring all things back to the way they were. And that's how scripture tells us God's plan, his story will end is where he renews all things. This is a story. But as we've seen the last two weeks and this week, we're going to see that there are propositions or truths within this story that are factual and important to make sure we get the story correct. If you think about it in a courtroom type setting, that any time we're trying to retell a story or events that took place, there are facts that are given to help establish the actual story of the events. And so the same is true here. We need to understand if we're going to be faithful to what the gospel is, we got to know its story, but we got to know its facts. This is the definition. I've already read it once, but let me read it again, that we've been using for the gospel throughout the series. It is God himself has come to rescue and renew all creation through the work of Jesus. And then we begin to talk about what is salvation. This is language we use that the gospel has come and Christ has saved us. Well, what does that mean? We've been unpacking that the gospel and salvation, as the Bible defines it, is three kind of ideas brought together in what Scripture calls salvation. Those three ideas are justification, sanctification, and glorification. Again, justification, sanctification, glorification. Now, again, these are the gospel truths. This is where we're getting into facts and theology that matter greatly. We've defined justification in simple terms as that the gospel saves us from the penalty of sin. Real simple. Sanctification is the gospel is saving us from the power of sin. And glorification, in simple definition, is the gospel will save us from the presence of sin. Notice the language of past, present, and future in all these. When we talk about justification, we are saying that there's a moment in time where Christ's forgiveness is given to a believer and the penalty of guilt and damnation is then removed from that believer. This is justification. This is the moment of being called justified. But then sanctification, the gospel is saving us or Jesus is saving us from the power of sin. This is how Paul could write in Romans 7, even though from the reference point of believer, that he still often does the things that he does not want to do. 
because he is still struggling with the power of sin. He's, the penalty of guilt has been removed, but sanctification is this process that you and I live in, in between justification and glorification, where God is working and removing us of that power. 2 Corinthians 3.18, you hear me quote it all the time, because it referenced this idea, and we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are what? Being transformed back into his image, one degree of glory to another. It's speaking to this process of God renewing us and making us, not only us, but all of his creation. And then today, I want us to unpack what is glorification. The gospel in the future, Jesus in the future, will save us completely from the presence of sin, not only in our own lives, but in creation. Point is, as we get ready to jump into glorification, is that salvation didn't just happen. Salvation is happening. When we talk about the gospel and how Jesus is saving us, yes, there is a singular point in time where Jesus removes the penalty of guilt and shame from us, but our salvation is beginning there. It's a race, if you will, that has begun with Christ, that the finish line is the day we get to see him face to face in eternity, glorification. What I hope to do today is to answer two questions as it relates to glorification. First, what is glorification? And second, why does it matter? So the first is going to be kind of knowledge. Let's answer the question, what is glorification in a biblical and technical term? And then let us unpack why this matters in our life today. Is it just a future event that doesn't matter for me today? Or is it a future event that matters greatly for me today? And I think I would imply that the latter is already true. So what is glorification? Here's the definition from theologian Wayne Grudem says this. Glorification is the final step in the application of redemption. So just walk with me. Understand we've already said that there's justification, sanctification, glorification. It's the final step in this application of redemption, of Christ saving and renewing and restoring his creation. It will happen when Christ returns and raises from the dead uh, from the dead the bodies of all believers from all time who have died. And, reunite, and reunites them with their souls and changes the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. Now you've got to understand, as, as though this is a very succinct explanation of glorification, that even within this theologian, he has spent almost 100 pages explaining it prior to this summary. So there's obviously maybe some questions you may have out of this, and we can talk about that. But it's important to understand that glorification is is the moment in which God finishes his saving work. Revelation 21. There's a lot of verses that can be used, but I want us to read this passage. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. As their God. Listen to this. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Can we pause there for a second and just reflect on God's word? That this is describing glorification. This is describing when Christ comes and he completely renews all things. Where he takes the new heavens and the new earth and he restores all of his creation. Remember our definition is that what? God himself has come to rescue and renew all creation through the work of Jesus. That's the definition for the gospel. Revelation 21 is him bringing that in. And what is the effect of that in our lives? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Think about things that you've cried over in the last year. I've cried over the loss of my father, over pain and suffering in my life, pain and suffering in other people's lives. And I think about just the last year. If that was the existence of my life, I long for that, the pain to have never happened. And one day there's a promise and a guarantee. This is what glorification begins to give us hope for. There's a promise and a guarantee that those things will be no more. Verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. We're going to talk about this next week, but I want to pause here for a second. There have been many times you've heard me say, and like, for example, at the end of verse 7 where it says, and he will be my son, that the New Testament was written in Greek, and Greek uses... uh, Uh, male and female gender within their language, similar to Spanish and other languages do this. English does not, but other languages do. And so if you're talking about plural, that you often use the masculine form, but even though it could be referring to both male and female. And so a lot of times English standard version will adapt, their translation will adapt and carry over that, that gender within the English. So if he's referring to son or sons, It could actually be male and female, even if it just says sons. And so I reference that to explain that a lot of times, because we might read just the English and feel like it's exclusive to female in a certain moment. And I tell you, no, actually it's referring to male and female. But here's an example of to where that's not true. And I'm going to unpack this more next week, but I want us to see this. Is that he is referring to son. That's not to say he's going to change all of our gender to son, but it is to say this. In the New Testament, in the Old Testament, who had the inheritance of the family passed on to? Sons. So when he says here, you will be my son, he's not referring to gender and what you'll be. He's referring to what you will inherit. It's no different than we as men are called the bride of Christ as well. Because it's reference to an identity, not necessarily a gender. It's a gender. It's reference to who we are in relationship to him. And here, Revelation 21 saying is you will be sons, meaning all of you will inherit the inheritance that is to come. It's a beautiful promise that all of us in Christ will inherit for all eternity. 
Verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It ends with a warning to us of what happens as well. I've given you a bunch of definitions, but I'm going to continue to give you definitions to help us see and understand. So what is glorification? I've defined it this way. Glorification is the culmination of God's saving work guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. Glorification is the culmination of God's saving work. It is the completion of God's saving work guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. So glorification is this future moment and when Christ will complete his saving work in our lives and all of creation. Great pastor, why does that matter? Four reasons to why that matters. First is this, without glorification, salvation as we know it is meaningless. It's a strong statement, but let me unpack it. Without glorification, salvation is meaningless. It's like running a race that isn't worth the run. The prize is no good. Now, this is a simple illustration, but a few weeks ago, my wife ran her first 5K. That's a big deal. I'm proud of her. Yes, yeah, we can, uh, we can applaud. She's not in here. Otherwise, she would be mad at me. Uh, don't tell her I talked about her. Okay, now all of you are going to end up telling her. Anyways, but she ran her first 5K. And it was the office 5K, and it was pretty cool because people were dressed up and all these different things. But one of the things I noticed at the end of it that I was just like, is she didn't get a medal. Like, she didn't get a medal saying this. Like, this is a big deal for her to run this 5K. Like, where's her medal? Now, I guess I grew up in the everybody gets a medal phase season of millennials. I don't really know. But, but I was like, where's her medal? I was like, we drove two and a half hours. She should at least get a, I should get a medal for driving with my kids for two and a half hours. Where, where are the medals? To use that as an illustration, glorification and being with Christ is the medal and reward of our salvation. I want us to see this because a lot of times if we're not careful, we talk about the gospel in a way that is not focused on what it should be focused on, meaning we will talk about Christ's justification in our lives, meaning he removes the penalty of guilt and sin from, from us. Therefore, we don't have the end of what we just read from Revelation 21.8. We are not cast into hell for all eternity. Great. Give your life to Jesus so you don't spend all of hell in eternity. But I didn't trust in Jesus in order to have just my sins forgiven. I trusted in Jesus because I saw the beauty that one day I would get to spend eternity with him. The reward isn't the absence of hell. The The reward is the presence of Jesus. And glorification is the promise and the guarantee that you are running a race that is difficult, this life, sanctification, where you are living amidst the brokenness and the hurt within the world of sin, but it is worth it. Because the prize is good and it is a guarantee. And without glorification, why do I need my sins forgiven? If I'm not going to stand before Christ one day and there is not an eternity in the balance, why do I need forgiven? But I need forgiven not only so I can receive his spirit now and have his spirit with me, but for all eternity I can be with him. I need forgiven because one day I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and I don't want to just be called forgiven back when I gave my life to Jesus. I want to be called forgiven in that moment, 
In the moment where Christ makes all things new and he decides whether you spend eternity with him for, or you spend eternity away from him, I want to hear forgiven. Now, what's the basis that we talked about in which I am forgiven? Christ and Christ alone. It is not my works, but it's what Christ has done. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Understanding the argument. Some are saying resurrection is not possible. Paul goes, well, if the resurrection is not possible, then Christ wasn't raised from the dead. Understand that? And if Christ was not raised from the dead, then you and I have no reason to have faith. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if, the, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We sang a song, the last song we sung was about the fact that we can face tomorrow because he lives. And we're going to, one of the goals of today's sermon is to encourage you that you can face today because he lives. That you can have hope today. That you can live in that hope today. But I want you to see what Paul's saying here. Is that Christ didn't just justify you and sanctify you so that you could have hope and satisfaction and joy today. But that you could have a guarantee of life tomorrow and eternity. So that you could have a guarantee that in the next life you are forgiven and that he will make all things new. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the, meaning he's the first one raised to eternal life. For as by a man came death, but, talking about Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Referring to that day where he calls us to life, this is glorification. He's talking about what we are calling glorification. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. He delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. God is at work in his saving power. And glorification is, is what brings it all together and makes it all valuable. Second, why is this important? First, without glorification, salvation is meaningless. Second, this is quite obvious, but we're going to say it anyways. Without glorification, salvation is incomplete. It's just incomplete. The first is saying it's meaningless. It's like running a race with no prize at the end. This is like running a race with no end. You just keep running and running. It's like four Gump out there, and eventually you just decide, I want to stop. But there's no end. What's the point? Why am I running? Why do I live for Christ if there's not the reward of Christ for all eternity? Without glorification, what's the point of my justification and sanctification? This journey just keeps going, and I'm quite tired. But knowing that glorification is true helps push me on. I want to unpack, and we're going to slow down for a second. I want to unpack Philippians chapter 3. 
I almost did this whole sermon just from this text, uh, but I felt like there are other angles of glorification we need to talk about. But I do want to slow down to make sure we get this text, because it's similar to Ephesians 2, this Philippians 3, I think is a really clear passage that unpacks all aspects of the gospel, meaning justification, sanctification, glorification. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 2, might encourage you to turn to your Bibles. We'll be here in a moment. It says, look out for the dogs, look out for evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's warning against those who are teaching a false gospel. One of the reasons we're doing this series is because I want to make sure we understand what is faithful, true gospel and not false gospel. So Paul is telling the church in Philippi, look out for those. And he's addressing those who teach salvation by works. He says this in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Summarize uh, or restate. He's saying we are of God's faithful, true covenant. Because we are a part of the covenant out of the Spirit of God marking us, not out of our own flesh and works. That's what he's trying to say. Verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Again, he's saying our confidence is not in the flesh, but if it were, I'd have really good reasons. He said, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisees, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Let me, again, make sure we're tracking his argument. He's saying, do not listen to those who are going to teach you salvation by works. We know, in fact, that we are in Christ. We are the true covenant people, not because of our own flesh. However, if it was up to our own flesh, I'd be a pretty good example. Basically, and then he gives his resume of how he was perfect. But then he says this in verse 7, but... Whatever gain I had, meaning whatever I gained from my own goodness or my own righteousness or my own religiosity, but whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ, meaning it was pointless. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Summarize, make sure we get this. Look out for those who tell you salvation is by anything other than faith. If it was based off your own goodness, I would be a good example of that. But even I'm telling you, it's not good enough, and it's not. And in fact, I, as a perfect person under the law, count all my goodness as rubbish and pointless compared to knowing Christ and his righteousness that comes from God that depends on faith. So he's talking about justification, that you're made righteous because of faith in Christ. But then he says this in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. He's talking about glorification, that through faith and righteousness, we know him and he will know the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's saying, I have counted all this as a loss because of the promise of one day being resurrected with him and seeing him. But then he says this, this is what's helpful. Because notice he's describing justification, righteousness through faith, 
for the sake of one day being glorified with Christ. So he goes from step one to step three. Justification all the way to glorification. Then he says this in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. Sanctification. See, we in Christ have been justified. We are righteous by faith alone in Christ. For a promise and guarantee that one day we'll be resurrected with him. But we are not there yet. You have not, have not already obtained that resurrection or that perfection. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. But what do I do? I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What he's saying is, I keep running my race because there's a guarantee that it will finish. There's a guarantee of the resurrection. Therefore, I keep pressing on. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anyone thinks otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Notice that without glorification, Paul doesn't have anything to strive towards. Paul's recognizing that what gives us the completion is glorification. Third, why does this matter? Because of glorification, we must live faithful. Now this is going to challenge to our lives. We're going to continue in this Philippians 3 passage. But because of glorification, we must live faithful. And because of glorification, we are empowered and compelled to live faithful to Jesus. We are empowered in the moment of justification. The Spirit of God lives in us and empowers us through sanctification to, be, to continue to walk faithful with Christ and compels us to be faithful to Jesus. But glorification continues to challenge us. So let's continue reading in Philippians 3.17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul's here. I want you to notice his train of thought in all of Philippians 3. We are not saved by works, but we are saved through faith in Christ for a promising guarantee of glorification. Therefore, because of that promise, that guarantee, we leave behind the old life. We strain towards what's ahead. And part of how we do that is we are called to be faithful to Christ. And we do that by imitating others, ultimately imitating Christ. Verse 18, for many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Notice he's still talking about the end. All of us will face an end. It'll either be destruction or glorification. How does he describe those whose end is destruction? He says their God is their belly. What does that mean? And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. What he's saying, their gods are saying their earthly appetites are their belly. Remember our memory verse, as we think about today, that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. That's, that's this God is our belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Those who are not following Christ, that is how they are described. And what is their destruction, or what is their end? It's destruction. But for us, verse 20, our citizenship is where? In heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, glorification, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. What's the challenge he gives in light of the fact that we are justified by faith alone and guaranteed uh, glorification in Christ? What's the challenge? Is that we must live faithful to him today. That you and I one day will stand before him and that gives us a challenge to live faithful. But then lastly, and I want to end with this, because of glorification, we can live hopeful. Not just must we live faithful to Christ and his word, but you and I can live hopeful. And if I'm just being honest with you for a second, this is everything for glorification for me as it relates to glorification in my life today. Yes, I know the truth of the fact that one day I will see Christ for all eternity. But because I believe that truth, it gives me hope today. Knowing the truths of glorification doesn't just let us know what will happen in eternity, but it gives us hope amidst what is happening in our lives today. It allows us to know that suffering will not last. Sickness will not last. Poverty will not last. Injustice will not last. Brokenness will not last. Evil will not last. Sin will not last. And death will not last. Because of glorification, you and I can face whatever we are facing today. Because of glorification, there's a promise and a guarantee that tomorrow will come no matter what hits us today. This is the context of Romans 8. Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he, search, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Ever heard that verse? Ever heard that verse in the midst of someone giving you advice and great pain, and you're just like, I don't need that verse right now? I have. Because if we're not careful, we turn this verse into just this trite, all things are going to work out fine. But if we are focusing on this life and this life alone, all things don't always work out fine. They do not. But the context of this verse is not to say that all things are going to work out fine for you in this life, but it's a promising guarantee that when all things in this life don't work out fine, it's a guarantee they will in the next life. This is glorification. This is the power of this verse. Not that today my problems are going to go away, but in eternity my problems are going to go away. It actually is helpful in the fact and the reality that when today my problems don't go away, and they continue to be a burden, and they continue to come at me out of my control, and at times it feels as though I'm drowning. I can have faith and I can trust that tomorrow I will see how this works out for my good in all eternity. So let me read that again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. How does he describe it working out good? For those whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Meaning that we will be complete in our sanctification and glorification. In order that 
he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. What then shall we say to these things? Love this verse. If God is for us, then who can be against us? What he's saying is, in glorification, nothing can stop that from happening. The promise and the guarantee that you will be glorified in Christ one day, nothing can stop that from happening. If God is for us, who can be against us? As if to say, who is greater than God? And if God has said that you're justified, then he's promised you'll be glorified. That's what he's saying. Verse 32, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is left to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As if to say, all these things that the world throws at us today, can it stop glorification in our lives? No. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That verse is not so you can win a baseball game. That verse is that you can win eternity. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ and Christ Jesus our Lord. Why does glorification matter? Because it gives you hope today. Because it's a promise and guarantee that no matter what comes your way, it cannot stop God's saving work in your life. So here's your takeaway. If you need a simple application for today, a tweet, if you will, to remind you of today's sermon, simply this, live today in light of eternity. Live today in light of eternity. How you live today, how you spend your money, how you spend your worries, how you spend your time, how you spend your prayer life, how you spend everything should be in light of the promise that one day you'll stand before Christ and be glorified and made whole if you are in Christ. Or you will spend eternity in damnation apart from him if you are not in Christ. So with eternity in mind, the question I ask you, are you in Christ? Do you know him as your Lord and Savior? Have you received, as Paul says, righteousness that only comes through faith in Christ? Righteousness that cannot be earned a righteousness that is freely given. Because as we see in our memory verses, even now, that we, before Christ, and if you're not in Christ, this is your current state. You're dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that is you. Spirit of, the spirit of the evil one has control over you. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You're carrying out the desires of your mind and your body. As Philippians 3 says, your belly is your God, meaning your personal appetites and whatever you want, you worship yourself. But there's death in that end. 
but in Christ, through faith in him, by grace you have been saved through faith. I challenge you, might you put your faith and trust in Jesus today? We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.